Welcome to the Boss Cities podcast hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Monacy. Today, we have Caitlin Dawson uh, as our guest. If, Caitlin, you could introduce yourself, that would be perfect. Yeah. Hi, and thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, actually. Yeah, my name is Caitlin. I'm uh, currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki. Um, I'm usually I'm originally from Ohio, actually, and then I um, have had my higher education in uh, in the U.S. and also in uh, London, and I've worked in England um, as well. And in Finland, I did my PhD in Finland and ended up back here working with some of the same people and some different people. Um, my PhD and my uh, master's degree were in music psychology. I'm really interested in auditory neuroscience. And uh, now I've kind of shifted and I'm working in the Faculty of Educational Sciences. And I'm doing research on science capital, which is uh, related to a lot of like anti-science topics and um, science communication and these kinds of things that are really, um, really critical and, and pressing, pressing issues uh, in recent times. So that's kind of... Um, made me interested in prioritizing, understanding how people um, deal with information and how people understand science. So it's a little bit different topics, but <laughs> both interested in, in brains and, and people and society. Yes. Now I just have to insert and say like Caitlin is someone like I've considered a mentor for about a year now and she's probably one of like my favorite people that I've had the chance to connect with and learn from. Um, just every time we talk there's always something um, that I'm able to get like, insight on or get a new perspective on by talking to her and I love like the breadth of like knowledge that she has across like education, neuroscience. That's like the reason why um, I sought her out as a mentor as well uh, because I was really interested in both like cognitive science and how you could apply um, uh, knowledge of the brain to like improve education systems. So that's actually one of the first things that I would like want to ask you about. Like, uh, could you explain what the Masters of Education program is like at the University of Helsinki, um, and how is it like unconventional or different to other educational programs um, in the U.S. or just globally? Yeah. So um, in my work, I also am teaching in this um, international master's program uh, at the university and. Um, it's actually the first uh, international master's program in our faculty, so it's it's taught in English. Obviously, um, we're in Finland, and the the national languages are Finnish and Swedish. And there is teaching um, in English in different places, but it it's very much up to the university and up to the faculty. So this program started uh, about three years ago, and I've been involved from the beginning because actually the director is a mentor of mine. <laughs> and uh, she it comes from neuroscience as well, it comes from cognitive neuroscience. So um, there's been this like cultural shift in education where we're really considering um, the impact of like brain-based uh, research in how we develop educational uh, practices and innovations a lot of um, more traditional educational approaches and pedagogical methods um, either had not been tested um, rigorously or in the same ways uh, using quantitative methods, for example, um, in the past. And there's really been a shift towards brain-based and um, evidence-based methods of, of teaching and of learning, kind of understanding how people learn, um, and that's started to inform more of education. And it's a, it's a slow change. I mean, it's been happening over decades. Um, but this program is really an indication because the director comes from cognitive neuroscience. Um, and so she's really, you know, progressive and interested in um, understanding how people learn. 
And additionally, um, one of the other unique things about the program is that it's really intended to attract a wide range of students. We really want a super diverse cohort of students. So our students come from all sorts of academic backgrounds. Um, I mean, we have artists, we have musicians, we have educators like with decades of, of experience in teaching. So we have teachers who come in and then do a master's degree either because they want to inform their practice or um, some want to come and do a career shift. So we have people who are interested in policy. We actually have people who work in um, like educational governing bodies who are in our, our program um, or who will work in educational governing bodies or interested in policy. Um, interested in social work, interested in developmental psychology and clinical psychology, um, really everything. I mean, it, it really runs the gamut and that makes it a uniquely challenging space. <laughs> if you can imagine trying to recruit students um, and thinking about like, what is it that they all have in common that, that would be the reason that they would come and study for us and how do we prepare all of them for master's level education. It's a research master's degree. And so you are expected to do master's level um, work. And it's, uh, yeah, and it's a two-year program. Um, it's been really interesting to see how students, um, you know, deal in that space. And especially with it being the first international program in this um, faculty, uh, the, there's a unique challenge when you're an international student coming to study somewhere in another country because you know every country has its own uh, educational kind of structure and educational culture um, and we don't realize how much of an effect that has uh, until you go and study somewhere else and so we have students from all over the world and we have to figure out how to guide them through the process of all of these kind of often invisible structures and also figure out how we can, um, you know, best serve their educational needs and their educational wants. And they all, I mean, I, I uh, made a, a comment at one point that, that it continues to amaze me that the first cohort of students who came in three years ago, uh, it was COVID. <laughs> it was the first year of COVID, um, 2020. And, you know, autumn of 2020, the world was shut down and these students signed up for the first year of the first English speaking program in Finland, which is kind of this, you know, country that we've heard about a lot in terms of education, but most people don't really know that much about it. There's only 5 million people who live here. It's a very small country population wise. Um, and the program is called Changing Education. And they signed up for that. So these people are incredibly ambitious, incredibly driven, incredibly passionate. And they bring all of their um, expertise and passion and drive to the program. And so we just have this like really kind of intense, driven, dynamic uh, situation. And I really actually, and I really enjoy working in that space. It's very challenging, but I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, I've honestly loved hearing like all of your experiences from the Changing Education Master's program and even hearing about like uh, types of people who like sign up to be a part of this program and like what those outcomes are like, like what they need to bring to the projects and um, assignments that they work on it has been really interesting to hear about. And just one of the things that I remember we've touched on before um, is how their perspective as like international students um, or working in like an area that is like more diverse has sort of a uh, influence the types of like projects they pursue or the types of problems they want to solve so I think hearing a little bit more about like 
what type of challenges that they're interested in, um, especially how, how it relates on like an international level, would be really interesting to hear about. I know like some things we've talked about has been like immigration policies, like even like language inclusion and like the structure of like uh, Finnish like education policy um, were all things that come to mind. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because we have to consider what the goals of each individual student are. And when you have such a diverse cohort of students, they all have really, really diverse goals. So like I said, some are, are from Finland, they're Finnish citizens, maybe they've been teachers for 10 years, um, maybe they're classroom teachers, maybe they're uh, you know, primary school teachers, for example, and they want a more you know, research-focused education to you know, progress their career. And their goal is to improve um, you know, finish primary school education, which is its own thing. And then um, others are coming to gain what they've heard of as really high quality Finnish education and then bring it back to their home country or even to somewhere else. I mean, wherever they end up next, um, when it comes to, you know, the educational policy in their country, maybe it works very differently um, than it does in Finland. I mean, you know, it works differently everywhere. Um, and they want to bring back those ideas and make those changes. And it, yeah, it's definitely very challenging when people are coming in with all of these different goals. Um, and one of the things that I am really interested in is how, how we kind of manage and work together when it comes to all of our different backgrounds and goals. So one of the things that I've gotten involved in is the um, equity uh, it, we, there's a couple of different groups that have these like very long names, <laughs> equality and non-discrimination plan working group and this kind of thing with the basically equity working groups um, in our program and in our faculty. Um, because I've seen how our students come in and they have either, you know, academic or professional or cultural um, kind of habits and beliefs and perspectives, like everybody has these and they're all different. And we have to learn how to work together. Um, and one of the things that they've really brought that was interesting and challenging is that um, this idea of exceptionalism, I know we've talked about this as well, this idea of Finnish exceptionalism. So I know in the US, the, the, um, the rhetoric is like, oh, the Nordic countries, like it's the socialist utopia where everybody has you know, free education and everybody has free healthcare and everything works perfectly and there's no social issues and there's no poverty and there's no racism and there's no nothing. Of course, that's not true at all. You know, like we have we have issues with socioeconomic status. We have poverty. We have racism. We have, you know, healthcare issues. We have budget issues. Like we have all of these things here, um, and and that exceptionalism, this idea of Finnish exceptionalism, that Finnish education is the best in the world, and everybody else should do it like we do it becomes a problem when you have a program with students coming from all over the world. And it's very insulting. I mean, if you sit there, and I, I really relate to this as a foreigner myself, I live here, I'm an immigrant, um, and I don't have citizenship. Uh, so, you know, I come and I also sit and listen and I hear how, you know, how backwards the education system is in other countries and how amazing it is in Finland. And then you, you go to the courses and you, you're saying, well, like, well, I mean, there are still things to improve, you know, there's this, this idea that we can't, um, we can't opt out of improving, we can't opt out of the conversation. And so our students have come and said, like, actually, we're hearing way too much about Finnish education system. Yeah, like we're come here, we're coming here, we're in the education system here. But 
we could actually have a wider conversation about global education. We could talk about international education. I mean, we could even take advantage of the, the expertise that exists in our own country and we can talk about indigenous pedagogical methods. I've had students, um, I have some students who are, who are in that space and who have studied indigenous methods. And um, they're saying like, yeah, this stuff is ignored. And these, these are actually the, the people who are from here originally, our indigenous populations are, are ignored in society and education. Um, and yeah, it's just all in favor of this exceptionalism. And of course, like, yeah, we do have healthcare, <laughs> state-supported healthcare and state-supported education, but just because it's, you know, better than nothing or better than it was in the past doesn't mean that we can just pat ourselves on the back and step aside. Um, we still have to have those conversations and we can have those conversations about how, how to respect other people's, um, you know, perspectives and other methods without kind of making that quality statement. Like our, our method is not better than someone else's just because it's labeled as the best education system in the world. We can actually learn a lot from each other and, you know, we can use science evidence-based methods. We can use quantitative methods. We can also use qualitative methods. We can say, you know, what kind of um, things do people learn about themselves in other education systems and with other pedagogical methods? Um, and this was, uh, you know, some of the beautiful things that we've had conversations with, again, with my colleagues in indigenous pedagogical methods. They're really beautiful things that you can learn when you, when you step aside and allow for other, um, other perspectives to have a voice. I'm really glad you touched on that because I definitely had that perception. I think that's something that's like definitely perpetuated a lot in the U.S. Um, I remember like in my economics class earlier this year, we watched a documentary about Finnish education and we were talking about how it is essentially like a socialist utopia in that sense, um, which it might be, you know, significantly better than the U.S. in some ways. But I think it's important to touch on, you know, the shortcomings of it as well. Like you said, um, no system is perfect and there's a lot that we can learn from other cultures and other systems. And I think it's interesting because the program is called Changing Education. And I don't think that means, or, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, changing just Finnish education, but changing global education and the way that we perceive education. So it feels all the more relevant that, you know, different people with different backgrounds and even like the diversity of the cohort you were talking about and having even like those voices included in this idea of like, what does education really mean? And like, and, and then using, you know, evidence that like evidence-based methods to kind of break that down. Um, I think that's fascinating. But I wanted to ask a little bit more about that whole idea of evidence-based research around education, because personally, I feel like the education systems and like, you know, perspective on innovation and education that I've, you know, seen or experienced, especially through policy work has been very qualitative. Um, and I'm curious, like, what does research around education look like? I know that you've done a lot of research kind of at the intersection of education, music, cognitive development, but um, if you could just kind of maybe walk us through like the general method of research, what research looks like at the master's program, and then also like the maybe general scientific process of what that research looks like, I'd be curious to hear. Absolutely. I love talking about research methods and the scientific method and scientific processes. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting is that um, you have to go back to the beginning when you talk about research and education, and you have to kind of realize that what you're doing is asking the very first question that everybody has to ask in science, which is, what is it that I'm interested in? What is it that we actually are looking for? What is the outcome that we are interested in? 
And it seems like a simple question, but actually it's it's a much more difficult question. And um, in one of my courses that I teach, actually my students struggle with this a lot. We have a, a big project where they develop this concept um, to kind of solve a big problem in education. It's this kind of problem-based learning um, project. And one thing that they really struggle with is designing a way to test that their concept works. And this is, this is the problem of education. What is it that we're testing? And actually I would say this is a problem in kind of intervention style research in general. Um, you see this also in musical interventions is that what's being tested is not actually the outcome that we're interested in. So we don't get the information that, we're, that we want in order to tell whether or not our intervention worked. So what are the outcomes we're interested in education? I think this is kind of one of the problems with um, that has been in the discourse a lot with, um, with US education is that the outcome has been test scores, right? Standardized test scores, but what are standardized tests and what is it that they're testing? So, I mean, we know, I think we know at this point that they test your ability to take standardized tests, right? They're not intelligence tests. Um, they're really biased as far as languages like verbal skills are concerned. For example, this has been a historical problem with intelligence tests is that um, they, they're uh, confounded by verbal skills. So if you have this kind of like high spatial intelligence or something, I mean, I don't subscribe to the idea of intelligence myself, but if you're gonna try and test someone's like reasoning skills, for example, and you give them a test that uh, is based that in language, that's a verbal test, of course it's confounded because if you have someone who struggles with verbal language, then they're not gonna be able to, to do the test even if they can do you know, spatial reasoning, for example. So that there's been ways um, that researchers have developed to test these things without confounding them. So for example, there's a, um, a spatial reasoning test called Raven's Matrices and it's a, it's kind of like a pattern uh, completion task. So you get like boxes that have um, a, a visual pattern in them and you have to pick the box that fills in the blank space. There's, a, there's like a puzzle piece missing and there's all sorts of rules. It gets more difficult as you go along, but it's sort of, you know, for example, like um, a grid of circles that get bigger as you go towards the bottom right. And, and one of them is missing and you have to fill in the piece. So that's not confounded by verbal ability. You don't actually have to speak or, or have high verbal skills in order to complete that. So it's testing what it wants to test without being confounded by these, these other things. So that's the problem of standardized testing. And the other question is, you know, even if we solve the problem of, um, you know, the, the problems that are inherent in the tests themselves, what are we actually asking when we're, you know, focusing on outcomes of test scores? Are, are test scores actually indicative of learning? And what do we mean by learning? <laughs> so it's, it gets quite complicated after a while because how do you know if someone has learned a concept? How do you actually assess that? So this is one of the areas of, of research and education is assessment. What are we assessing? How are we assessing it? Do the methods work um, and this kind of thing? So that's another area. And all of these are completely different areas that people can, can kind of go in. You can, you can do kind of test score-based research. You can do assessment-based research. You can do conceptual change, for example, which is, um, <clears throat> you know, when, when people come into a situation, they often have this, this sort of 
uh, naive belief. You can you can take a guess even at something that you don't know. And so you have this mental model of an answer about a concept and then you learn more about it and you get a different mental model. And so that process of changing the concept is another thing that's, that's in research and that's sort of a, a type of learning. There are a lot of different types of learning. Um, is memorization the same thing as being able to uh, apply an abstract concept, for example. So there's in, in pedagogy, there's this, this pyramid um, of, of like scaffolded skills kind of. So the, the first skill is being able to like memorize facts and repeat them back. And then it gets more and more complicated until, until you're able to um, apply a, a complete skill to a brand new situation. That's sort of the, the pinnacle of complexity when it comes to learning. So we can study all of these things when it comes to learning. And we really have to start by going to that original question of what are the outcomes we are interested in and what do they mean? And that's sort of the, the first place of in, when it comes to research design, that's our hypothesis. And then everything has to be aligned, uh, you know, in the whole research process from there. So our, our methods, um, our experimental design or our observational design is based on our hypotheses because we want to be able to observe the phenomenon that we're interested in, that we have a hypothesis about. Um, and then we have this research design. We have to make sure that the the tools that we're using to measure the phenomenon um, are valid, for example. So you wouldn't want to use, um, you know, so again, this is sort of where students and, and researchers, I think, come into to problems. So for example, I gave this example in one of my courses, um, which is that if you have designed uh, an app, for example, to help high school students study for their government uh, class, and it has, you know, chat functions where they can work on projects together. And it has um, study tips and, and a place to take notes and this kind of thing. And you want to know if using that app helps students improve their test scores on this particular course. That's a very simple question. But if you design a survey that asks students whether they liked using the app and whether they, um, how often they use the app, and whether they thought that the tabs organized the different functions in the right way. That's not actually testing the outcome that you want to measure. What you need to do is control for all of those engagement variables, like how often people use the app and, um, you know, yeah, and even their perspectives on it. But the outcome is the test scores. So you actually have to wait until the students complete the course and collect their test scores. And that's the outcome of interest. So all of these things have to be aligned in order to actually answer the questions about education. I find that so interesting. It reminds me of like the entire field of like um, user uh, research or user experience research, um, UI UX design. Um, and I just find it so interesting, like um, how dependent like the outcomes that we are like, we find are on the types of questions that we ask, the way that we shape them. Um, and how different like those outcomes can be assessed or interpreted. Um, and it reminds me a lot of like why it's so important to have universal design, even when you're like uh, asking questions, even when you're measuring outcomes, like is it under like comprehensible for like anybody who reads it? Like, um, can this be used across like different sectors uh, in like a project or a workplace? Um, and if you wanna add anything, Monesty, you definitely can. Yeah, I was just going to like add on to that. I liked what Salia said about like UI, UX design and, you know, questions also being, you know, 
more universal across like the outcomes you're measuring. Um, and I also liked how you kind of touched on equity a little bit, sort of with the idea of standardized testing. And um, I think that even in schools, at least like I can only really speak to my experience in the U.S. going to public school. But um, and I think this is like pretty true for all public schools in the U.S. is the idea of like a school experience as well. And that experience being measured very qualitatively, for example, like they kind of give us like surveys every year for example where you're kind of just saying yes or no like I had a good relationship with xyz teacher or like I felt safe at school yes or no and those things don't really measure much of anything really it feels like those surveys are just a waste of time a lot of the times because again I think there's no um innovation both around the idea of like standardized testing and like learning outcomes but also no innovation around the idea of like what is a school environment and like what does it mean to be in a learning environment and like have that kind of a relationship with the teacher and like what does that relationship look like so it feels like what you were saying was applicable not just to the actual learning outcomes themselves but um you know maybe the social outcomes that students have in schools or like the uh relationships that they're learning to build with their teachers or other people you know peers people outside of their school mentors things like that um so it felt applicable for all parts of the school system not just like the learning which i thought was interesting yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we've been talking about a lot in the equity circles. Um, and I think you you said it exactly like the school experience, even and that even applies in university as well. I mean, our students are adults, but it's it's a similar concept. And it's this idea of universal design is really important when it comes to um, like feedback and like equity related issues and access to um like the ability to be comfortable in your, your educational space and to have your voice heard. Um, it's amazing how many people don't realize how important it is to have a truly anonymous feedback measure that asks the right questions. You know, as you were saying, like just this one thing, do you feel safe at school? Yes or no. Okay, but, you know, is this anonymous feedback, first of all, and who is it going to, and can it be tied to me, and are they going to follow up with me, and is that information safe, and what does it even mean, yes or no, what is the threshold to say no, when there's no examples given, how do I know what that means to you, does it mean the same thing to me as it does to you, all of these different questions, and it, it really prevents people from speaking up, so yeah, I think exactly universal design is, is the right word for this, because the whole point of universal design is to to design a space so that um, everybody has access to it, right? So that it's not a situation where you have this default that's set for, um, you know, this able-bodied, you know, white man or something, but it's that everybody has access to that space without having to ask for a special accommodation. Because really like, if you come into a space and you have to ask to get access to it, it's a really othering experience and a really um, exhausting experience. And a lot of the time people will just not do it because it's not worth it. You don't know if you're gonna get pushback. You don't know if you actually even will have access, if it's even worth it. Um, like. I'm like my experience in this kind of thing is mostly for language um, accessibility, uh, which is something that we've been 
pressing for now that we have this international master's program. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, the kind of um, official stuff that we get from the university technically only has to be in Finnish and Swedish because those are the legal, you know, that's the, the um, national languages. And the university is officially trilingual, but not everybody, you know, you can't force people to follow that rule if there's no, um, no accountability, you know, system put in place. And so a lot of the time we don't get access to something in English or we get excluded from a social space. So for example, there'll be a seminar and we'll just get an email with, you know, a couple of lines about it. And, and then there will be an English at the bottom. Sorry, this is in Finnish. So like, we're not going to bother to tell you about it because the seminar is in Finnish. So it's like, uh, yeah, if you don't understand Finnish, you probably won't go to the seminar, but it would be nice to have that representation there. And in the same way, um, yeah, people really don't want to have to you know, it's not fair to ask people to use that time and energy and work trying to get access to spaces and trying to get their voices heard. Um, and that, like the way that we think about feedback, uh, you know, feedback design, like survey design, and, um, you know, even the, the, like the accessibility of course materials and different different ways. So that's another thing that we have talked about in our program a lot is trying to get um, captioning on recorded lectures. And this is a lot more challenging than you would think um, because it turns out that the, you know, there's the automatic captioning, um, you know, methods like YouTube has one, Google has one, um, but the algorithms really struggle with different dialects and different accents. So if you have a program with 20 different teachers all speaking English in different accents, it doesn't work. We tried it, it really doesn't work because the algorithms are not written to detect, um, you know, different phonemes, different pronunciations. Um, and so then in order to get captioning, we would have to pay uh, and, you know, pay someone who does it because it takes forever to sit there and do it by hand. And none of us have, you know, that's not in our job description. We don't have time for that in our work plans, the teachers. Um, so we'd have to pay an external service to do that for every single course that's recorded. But on the other hand, we really need, you know, captioning or information in text because our, our students all have varying um, English proficiency levels. So when you have both students and teachers all coming from different languages, most of us who are speaking English, not as our first language, it, it is really a matter of universal design and universal access that the material is presented in many different modalities. And that's not even bringing in kind of, um, you know, visual impairment uh, accommodations and these kinds of things, but it's just, just that language thing. And understanding actually that there's many different reasons why people might need captions on videos. Um, I mean, also like people talking really fast. Uh, some people struggle to, to like listen that fast. I myself struggle with understanding things. And, um, you know, there's like auditory processing issues. So I, I can't learn anything if I'm just listening to it. I actually have to read it. I have that auditory processing issue. Um, so there's so many different reasons that, that these things need to be presented in different ways. And if, yeah, exactly, universal design, if, if we approach it in that way that like we can make it better for everyone, 
then we don't have to put the burden on people who would be excluded for having to ask for something extra. I just want to touch on this whole idea of translation accessibility really quickly before we move on, because I think it's really interesting. And like the idea of dialects and even, you know, pronunciations or accents and all of these different things that we don't often think about. And even like um, when it is translated to English or other languages, like uh, the way that it's translated, like, is that, you know, common for that language? Like, let's say they're using some version of English in the translation that's, you know, maybe not common to all English speakers. Like, what does that look like? Maybe it's um, using maybe more complex vernacular that you wouldn't see in um, or wouldn't be digestible by people who are maybe beginning English speakers or like mid-level English speakers or people who, again, like have issues with auditory processing and maybe might need to listen to things slowly or uh, might need more clarity um, on certain things or certain definitions. But I'm curious to hear like um, how has the translation space changed or improved? And like I'm I'm not really well immersed in that space, but I'm curious to hear like do you think that there's a possibility that we'll have models or um, tools in the near future that will be able to kind of like uh, perceive these dialects and perceive these accents and be able to. Uh, translate them faster, more accessibly, easier. Um, if if you think that's something in our future, if not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not actually in a, a translation professional space. I have have a couple of friends who are, but um, yeah, I can only imagine that the the AI algorithms and stuff will improve um, with time. Um, one thing that we we have talked about in terms of like you brought up really complicated language or you know different choices of, of words when it comes to translations. Um, yeah, that is a problem. And I will have to say like when you work in an international space, so I've been working um, in Finland for like almost 10 years off and on. Uh, and there's, there's kind of a phenomenon that you get used to, which is this international English. So when everybody is approaching communicating in what is for most people, you know, not their first first language, many um, Finns, especially of, of our age, have learned English around, um, you know, 10 or 11. Many have learned it at home. You know, there's it varies a lot, but they do learn it in school. Um, but when you're working in an international environment, I mean, we work with people from, you know, all over the world. And we're using English as a, a communication language. There is a, yeah, there's this international English. So you really do have to kind of strip all of the dialect out. And I, I, uh, I know like myself and some, you know, uh, British English colleagues and, and Canadian colleagues and Australian colleagues have, have talked about this, this phenomenon. You really like strip it away and you try to develop this um, very clear accent. Um, and, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so <laughs> I have kind of like the most basic of American accents, which it helps me a lot. Um, but sometimes, you know, it comes out and you pronounce something and people are like, what did you just say? Um, but it you, you sort of focus more on communicating the ideas rather than kind of how they're being communicated. And this is something that I think that has shifted in the past, I don't know, few decades even, I mean, kind of the idea between maybe the, in the past century to now, um, I think we've realized that speaking eloquently is not an indication of your intelligence or of your quality as a human being or of the quality of your ideas. 
there really did used to be this idea that, you know, that your intelligence was tied and the quality of your ideas was tied to the way that you speak. And so we tried to get people to speak better. You know, there was this real, real um, holding up of verbal skills as, as an indicator, especially of, you know, academic competence and, and professional competence. Um, and I think that that has really shifted. I have seen that shift and I have, have experienced that shift myself in working with um, international colleagues and, you know, teachers and professors who all have very different styles, um, very different speaking styles, very different writing styles. Everybody kind of has their own skill set and being, you know, able to use big words is not really, it doesn't mean anything if you can't get across your ideas. So we really focus on the ideas and a dialogue um, and, and making it a safe space to clarify things and not, you know, making fun of people for not knowing a word or something. Um, yeah, and I, it, I really always try to put myself in other people's shoes and I, like my Finnish skills are very bad. I will have to say like they're, they're quite um, elementary at this point. And so I understand what it's like for somebody to make fun of you for not understanding a word or for not knowing a word. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't want people to feel like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter in your second language and it doesn't matter in your first language either. <laughs> You know, it, it just matters how you relate to people. And if you can communicate your ideas in, in some way, then we can all have a conversation and work together. Yeah, I think that's a perfect transition uh, transition into our next topic, which is like media literacy and scientific communication. And it reminds me a lot how we've discussed um, like this otherization and like science communication that can happen because of like political polarization or how there's like alienation or how like a really strong reason that people um, feel like, uh, resistant to science or like uh, facts is based on the beliefs of their communities or the values that they hold and not necessarily like individual perceptions or beliefs but um, the fear of being like alienated from their communities from their families from their most core relationships so I'd love to hear more about that yeah there's a lot involved when it comes to anti-science beliefs I mean definitely this idea of the ivory tower is part of it um yeah, and it's something that we have been, that it is a perfect transition in that, you know, this this traditional method of making things as complicated as possible as an indicator of academic prowess is an equity issue. Um, and it's an issue of science communication. That's where those, those topics cross over. Um, because if you're not able to communicate with the public or with, you know, kind of at any level, there's this really good um, YouTube series I think it might have been from, I'm trying to remember now, from Vox or something, but it was where experts would explain their concepts at five different levels. Have you seen this? Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Everything from like, you know, theoretical physics to jazz music. And they start out by talking to like a five-year-old child and explaining what they do to this child. And then they kind of, you know, and the people tend to get older and older. Um, and then, you know, then they're talking to uh, an expert in a related field, but a different field. And then they're talking to a colleague. And you can see how people who have worked on their communication skills like this can make that shift without patronizing, without talking down to you and with understanding that. So that's actually a really important part of our job as researchers, as scientists, is learning how to communicate our findings and our, our goals 
um, and our processes to anybody who can ask. And that's something that I think is really, really important, especially when, you know, we have this distrust of science and there are a lot of different elements to that. There's sort of this idea of, um, you know, every day the, the news comes out and says that, you know, eating strawberries is going to cure your, you know, whatever. And then the next day it'll say eating strawberries causes this disease and it's just something new every day. Um, and part of that is the way that, you know, clickbait journalism tends to latch onto something in order to get views and clicks and engagement. And that's, that's sort of a, <clears throat> that's a, an industry issue with, marketing and you know these kinds of things it's an economic issue that's how they make money but it's also an issue with how scientists talk to talk to journalists um and how we we kind of give up ownership sometimes of our own work when we talk to journalists and we give these press releases and they're they're kind of interviews i've done this once <clears throat> um right after my um when I was defending my PhD, there was a this kind of a tradition of doing a press release um, and talking to a journalist, and then they publish a, an article in the, the local paper about your uh, your dissertation. And it was a really interesting experience because it's really controlled by the journalist. Like the conversation is entirely, what do they want to know? What do they think the public is interested in? And um, I remember they they asked me. Um, so does this, this does this research mean that um, that Finnish people are better at music than German people? <laughs> my my research was about um, how musical experience and language experience makes these very um, very subtle changes in your brain function with how you process sound in general. You know, it's this kind of uh, very small, you know, small little bits of research. And then they're asking like, are Finnish people better at music than German people? Like, that's not what this is about at all. You know, that's a, that's a complete, completely different question than what the research is saying. Um, and so I think that it's really important for researchers to take control back of our own work and to actually engage more with the community so that the community can see that we are just normal people who happen to have a specific skill set that allows us to, you know, gather this information and then we share the information with you. And uh, something that we're talking about in our, our work um, is the way that um, <clears throat> the way that we communicate to the public um, and kind of the, the way that we can yeah, increase trust. Um, and part of that comes from our communication and part of that comes from education um, in how the public understands what the, the kind of goals and processes of science are. So some of that mistrust comes from people not understanding how the scientific method works. Um, so a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they don't trust scientists because we will never say anything outright. We always say we need more research or you know, this is one study and it can only have these tiny effects and maybe this causes this and maybe this is related to that. But we do that because that's part of the process. We wanna update our theories with the best information. And if we don't have enough information and there's a lot of different ways that we can tell whether we have enough information and whether it's good quality. So there's statistical methods and then there's consensus. Um, so this is a problem with uh, climate change, for example. So there is a consensus 
among scientists of climate change, but because not every single scientist in the entire world is willing to say it, then that gives people doubt because they don't understand that there's no such thing as 100% when it comes to science, because we always have to leave open that space to update our theory. And that's the point. We, that's the whole point of science is that we will always get better and better. We never have the answer. Um, but yeah, misunderstanding that, you know, can sometimes lead to distrust. I find that really interesting in terms of like how people interpret like scientific fact or like how they might misunderstand like a lack of consensus and how that can sort of brew mistrust and doubt. Um, and it reminded me a lot of how people like use these facts or information to sort of like uh, base decisions or like base their opinions or beliefs. So that's something that I always found really interesting. Um, and if you want to add on, Monacy, you totally can. Yeah, I was definitely going to add on. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I liked how you mentioned the Vox series as well. I thought that was cool. And everything else you were saying also reminded me there's like another series where um, I think it's like by Jubilee or something, but it's like, um, for example, three people who like believe in vaccines and then three people who are anti-vax and they kind of have like a uh, I think it's called middle ground I might be wrong but they kind of like sit in the middle and there's like different statements and if you like agree you sit in the middle and you like have a discussion about it and then you know at the end everyone like has a discussion about it and I think that series is also really interesting because I feel like that almost is like to me the epitome of like that relationship and that mistrust like I feel like um, sometimes it's hard to see that mistrust in real life if you're not around you know both types of people but I feel like for me like that's where I feel like I was exposed to like oh there is so much mistrust between like the general public and like the science um, and I liked how you're talking about also the scientific method and how like when we don't understand the scientific method it's hard to understand where science is coming from even though again like you said what I also really liked was um, there isn't or there shouldn't really be a hierarchy in research it is just a group of people trying to find information about the world and share that like that is the essence of research is to just like find something new and it's not about um, I know this so I'm you know academically or intellectually superior but it's just like information that benefits the good of the people and I feel like that meaning gets lost a lot in journalism and in scientific communication um, and I thought it was also um, interesting like your experience with your PhD dissertation like doing the uh, press release after that uh, I think that uh, I resonate a lot with the idea of like we try to draw really big conclusions from science sometimes. And I think, um, you know, that's why sometimes people are like there's so much research being published on like, you know, things that can cure cancer and things that can you know solve Alzheimer's and all of these things. But we don't understand that these are just indications. And there's a whole long process of trials and you know more research and more research that builds off of this foundational one discovery and so it's hard to say oh you know this seems like it could be some sort of potential benefit for someone with like this condition but it's not the cure and I think like the uh the desire that we all have is to see research as the cure as to see research as the end-all be-all because um you know at least when we're personally affected by things we want there to be an end-all be-all and we you know want to go to science for that end-all be-all but um science isn't that end-all be-all and I think that's like deeply unsatisfying at, at an emotional level I think sometimes um so I thought that was interesting too yeah absolutely and um yeah it's it's it is really interesting this idea that people have such a separation like people distrusting science separate themselves so much and they they and then people who are really into science and don't engage with the community community um who aren't uh, <clears throat> really don't, we don't understand each other. And this is actually something that um, is part of 
what we talk about when we talk about science capital. Uh, part of the idea of science capital, so science capital is this um, project that I'm, I'm working on and uh, with a big consortium. Um, and it's the idea that it's like how people hold resources in society, that's capital, social capital, cultural capital. Um, it's like power and resources. So the concept of science capital was taken from that. And it's the, the idea that because we live in this sort of information technology society, a lot of our economics, our social power, um, our you know academic, our educational, our professional power, all of this stuff is connected to knowledge and to science. Um, and if you hold resources and power related to science, um, then you have more resources and power in society nowadays. And those scientific resources and power have to do with education and they have to do with um, the ability to engage in institutions like go to museums, go to zoos, um, go to seminars, buy books, read books. Um, but it also has to do with relationships. It has to do with being around people who do science. Um, that's a, a huge part of science capital is having relationships with people who are working in science and who, who do science. And the other interesting part is called science identity. And that's how you see yourself in relation to science, whether you see that you are someone who does science, whether or not it's professional, whether you see that you are someone who is capable of scientific reasoning. So there's some questionnaires that we have. One of them is, is um, you know, I, I am not smart enough to do science. I'm not smart enough to do math. You know, and people who hold that feeling that they're not a, a math person. You know, we have this, this math is kind of like the thing that, that a lot of us grew up feeling like we were not a math person. We're not smart enough to do math. Um, you know, or that, you know, we're women. And so we, we, uh, we're not as good at math as, as the boys in the class or something. Um, and people feel that way about science. Um, a lot of people feel that they're not intelligent enough or not um, aware enough or um, educated enough to do science. And so one of the things that we have thought that is a really important outreach um, in you know, public spaces, science museums and activities and, and in schools and things is to show people that actually there's a lot of stuff that we do every day that is based on the scientific method, that is scientific reasoning. Um, and this is something that we are interested in is how that kind of scientific reasoning um, and how people relate to scientific ideas in their everyday life when they're not being told like this is about science, this is a test, a scientific you know, test in school or something. How do we actually engage with science on an everyday basis? And how does that affect our decision-making when it comes to these topics? And you know, a lot of that has to do with our our identity and our relationship to science. That's, that's so, so interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was just, go ahead, Celia. I was gonna say, yeah, I find it so fascinating like how much of like this like ability or like willingness to accept science um, is tied to like your core beliefs about yourself. Like it's very much so about like your identity. And it reminds me a lot of like how that connects like identity politics. Like when people just identify with a certain like ideology based on their identity, based on like whether a politician like holds that similar identity. Up to them um, which is something that I just thought was interesting to touch on yeah that's definitely interesting I was gonna say um, science definitely feels like a religion or a philosophy that you have to kind of be all immersed in or like not at all immersed in um, and I think like 
like growing up I think I had like the notion of if you're in science you're like wearing a you know white lab coat and you're like pipetting things into tubes like that's our notion of science but um, even the idea of like qualitative research right like it's not something you you know might often associate with science it seems very like procedural and clinical even though that's not always what science is but I really liked that um, you're talking about thinking about how science is in our daily lives and like it is part of our daily routine and like the systems that we're immersed in like even those are based on the scientific method and that's fascinating because I think like there's a very strong association or disassociation with science like it feels like you can't just you just can't be in the middle um I also like live in the Silicon Valley so it feels that same way with tech where it's like you're either a tech person or you're not a tech person there is no in between and often you know it's the former like you have to be a tech person of course like you live here um you have to know how to code you have to you know be an AI you have to be doing xyz um and it's the same with research like you have to be doing research um but there is like really no clarity on like what is research and like there are so many different forms of research and I think like um, even just as a student like exploring different forms of research like at my school and things like that um, I think I've also made that conclusion of, of my own that um, there is kind of no clear-cut definition of research and like research um, can be flawed in a lot of ways but there's a lot of interesting forms of research that you can do that don't require you to just you know be pipetting things if that's not of your interest um, so I think like uh, that idea that idea and I think making that more mainstream of science can be mainstream I feel like there there has been more of a movement of like science can be mainstream like things like these Vox series or um, YouTube videos and things like that but I think like uh, going back to education like the idea of like how are we making science mainstream maybe should be the question we should be asking because it feels like we have all of these efforts to be making science mainstream but like it doesn't really seem to be working like it's it still feels like there's some sort of a social hierarchy there so um, and I think like uh, just again like from my own observation it feels like a lot of our efforts to make science more mainstream and like make it more accessible again like for little kids or um, people with different ethnic cultural socioeconomic backgrounds it feels again like science is just pipetting things or science is a very procedural clinical um, thing and it's not as explored it's not ex exploratory as it is um, and I wish like that was translated more in this whole science is mainstream movement yeah and Absolutely. And I will say, actually, like you, you definitely like hit the nail on the head exactly with science is like a religion. I mean, this is the, the opposite, you know, kind of the other side of the spectrum from people who really disbelieve and distrust science is that people who are dogmatic about science, right? Um, the, I think like one of the most interesting things, and this is a, why everybody needs to take philosophy of science um, courses and history of science courses. Because actually the way that we do the scientific method, the way that we do statistics in the scientific method, kind of traditionally and in the mainstream, um, it's changing a bit now, but the way that you know we were taught in school is this frequentist statistics, this it, based on falsification, this idea of Popperian falsification. The idea is that um, you can't prove uh, that something is true. So our hypothesis that we, we make a hypothesis um, and we compare it against a null hypothesis. So the idea is that we think that something is going to happen or something happens because of something, right? That's the thing that we're testing. And then we have the null hypothesis, which is the opposite of it. So what if it's not? <laughs> what if it, it's not true? What if it doesn't happen? What if it's not connected to this other thing? And we search for evidence. We do our test and we decide, do we have enough evidence? And is it strong enough evidence to say that we 
have some support for this hypothesis that we think something is happening here? Or do we fail? So this is a statistical thing. Do we fail to find support for that hypothesis? We never accept a hypothesis. We don't, um, we just reject the null hypothesis. <laughs> we don't accept our, our alternate hypothesis. Um, and this is like really basic statistics. But there are other ways to do it. <laughs> you know, this is not this is not a universal truth about life. This is not a law of of the universe. It, it's really really important for us to remember as scientists. Um, and this is kind of where it comes back into to like potential for bias. I mean, we're talking about statistical bias, but there's a lot of a lot of sources of bias that are really problematic for science. And we have to remember that everything that we do in science is made up, right? It's made up by humans and it's being observed by humans. So all of the measurement tools that we create, whether they're questionnaires or whether they're, um, you know, I also work with EEG. So we, we do, you know, brain imaging. Um, all of that has been created by humans. And here's an interesting parallel um, in the, the like AI chatbots and stuff, the development of these chatbots, right? We, we know that they're problematic because they're learning from the data that's being fed to them and the data that's being fed to them is created by humans, right? So they have the same biases that humans do in, in, their, you know, in their output. So all of our things, no matter how kind of objective we think they are, they've all been made up by humans and we need to understand how they were made up and why we made those decisions in order to avoid biases that can Kind of convince us of things that may or may not actually be true. And this is one of the reasons that I think the interdisciplinary research is so important, exactly like you were saying with qualitative research. I mean, that is research. That is, you know, that is science. That is research. And it gives us very different um, data than quantitative research. It asks very different questions. It has very different um, values and perspectives sometimes than quantitative research. And I really appreciate the interdisciplinary groups that I've worked in. I'm just thinking of in our, our current project, we have a master's student who comes from sociology. And I appreciate their comments so much because they find um, gaps that the rest of us didn't see at all. <laughs> you know, those of us coming from cognitive neuroscience, they're saying, well, what about this, this aspect of our population? You know, the people that we're, we have sent these questionnaires to, the people that we're testing and recruiting for our studies, what, you know, what is it about them that might be different because of the way that we approach them, for example? So one of the issues that we have in psychology, I had this conversation with the, the student um, and they were kind of amazed <laughs> because in psychology, one of our huge issues with um, our experiments is that all of our experiments, let's say, the vast majority of our experiments are, are done um, by recruiting volunteers. And we often recruit volunteers from universities. So we have whoever is taking Psychology 101 <laughs> at our university. And you, you can think that's obviously not a representative sample. There's all sorts of biases going on there. Age, gender biases, um, socioeconomic status biases, privilege, like all of these different areas create this huge bias. And yet most of psychology research is based on that population. So how are we gonna say that those results generalize to the rest of everyone if we are not using 
a representative sample, but at the same time, the statistical methods that we use actually require that our samples are as homogenous as possible. So we use these kind of convenience samples of, of like, you know, this group of, in some ways, <laughs> homogenous, you know, people, and then we get rid of anybody else. So we get rid of you if you're left hand. We get rid of you if you, um, you know, don't have corrected to normal vision. We'll get rid of you if you have, um, you know, if we're doing a brain study and you have uh, some kind of neurological disorder, you know, these kinds of things. And so those people get left out of research and we're not actually asking questions that, you know, and finding answers that represent them. So this is a huge problem in science um, and in quantitative science, but in qualitative methods and coming from sociology and ethnography and, and anthropology um, and, and in education, like more traditional educational methods, we can actually answer those questions and we can ask, you know, what does everybody think individually about something? And, and we can have a conversation with them. We can have a focus group, for example, and you get really, really different data from a focus group than you do from a survey. So this is, I really think that interdisciplinary work is the answer to that. I find that really interesting. And it reminds me a lot of uh, like our discussions on like other things you've researched as well. Like for example, like auditory neuroscience and music psychology and like the subsections of each um, and how your research in music psychology was also very interdisciplinary, especially considering like um, like work done in like uh, independently of, like music psychology and then um, linguistics as like a different field. Um, it's just something that I think would be really great to like touch on before we close the episode. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so my my PhD dissertation was about um, music and language and brain plasticity. So really briefly, the background is that there's this idea that um, our brains are very plastic. And by that, we mean they, they change. They're very dynamic, but very adaptive. This is a very, you know, a reason why humans have been so successful um, is because our brains change to our environments to make us better at reacting to things. Um, and that's true in the whole brain. And in the auditory brain sections, uh, regions, um, the, the regions are really sensitive to inputs, especially inputs that are regular over time. So if you think about what are kind of the most um, important sound inputs to our brain over our lives, and that's language, first of all, particularly our native language, and second of all, music. Um, music is really, really culturally significant to humans, and there's a lot of different theories about how and why music exists, whether it existed before language or whether it came about as a, a kind of like side, um, a, a side thing that took advantage of the structures that were there for language. But the idea is that the, the parts of our brain that process sound, they, they process both music and language. And those parts can change from our experience with language and with music. So there's studies that show that um, for example, if you speak a tone language, the parts of your brain that process frequency or the pitch of a sound are um, enhanced. That processing is enhanced and you are more um, accurate at processing pitch. And that's true for language and it's also true for music. So if you hear music and you speak a tone language, your brain is more effective at processing pitch than someone who doesn't speak a tone language. Um, and also for music. So for example, English speakers who are trained musicians process pitch better than English speakers who are not trained musicians. Um, and it 
seems to, there seem to be subtle differences in um, exactly like what features of the sound your brain is being trained in. So like I was saying, the, the pitch thing, um, the kind of two main features of sound are pitch and duration or timing. And this is what my PhD was about. I was really interested in what happens when you combine different kinds of languages that have different, um, in different ways of encoding pitch and duration um, and music, which has both pitch and duration. And, you know, does it depend on what instrument you play? So for example, someone who plays violin or cello, are they more enhanced in pitch and less in duration than someone who plays the drums? Do you, how much do you need to process pitch when you play the drums? You know, this kind of thing. And we also know that it doesn't take professional music training to have these changes in your brain. Um, you know, there's not like a switch that gets flipped when you have a, a you know, classical degree in music that suddenly your brain is now great at processing sound. Um, but it happens slowly over time. And it doesn't seem to be necessarily the, the type of training itself. So people who have, who are self-taught um, amateur musicians, for example, have the same changes um, if they've practiced the same amount. So it, it seems to be your self-training, not exactly like just classical music or this kind of thing. Um, and with language, there's a lot of different ways that different languages encode these features. So Finnish, for example, encodes duration, but not pitch, um, not directly coded pitch. There's a little bit of an issue because they're, they're actually related. Um, if you know anything about psychoacoustics, um, there's this idea that, you know, uh, a pitch is, you know, what we know a pitch and a, a frequency in sound is the repetition of a wave over time. So if you think about every time that cycle repeats, that's a, a type of timing. So they're actually related and, and they're, you know, you can't really have one without the other, but there are ways to um, get around them a little bit. But anyway, so for example, in Finnish, um, the, the, the word tuli uh, means wind and the word tuli means fire. So there's a, you can hear that the difference in tuli, you have to extend the U um, and it has this in both consonants and vowels. And there, I don't know, like I don't speak Finnish very well, but if you hear there's a little bit of a pitch shift, tuli, that often happens, it goes down a little bit. So they're connected, but the pitch shift doesn't change the meaning of the word, but the timing does change the meaning of the word. So this is an idea of lexical duration rather than lexical pitch as in a tone language. So in a tone language, it changes the meaning of the word when you change the pitch on the phoneme. Um, yeah, so these things are all really complicated and they interact in the brain. Um, and uh, let's see, what were we, what was the original question? <laughs> I don't know if there was one. Maybe Swalia, like feel free to jump in if there was yeah, one. I don't think I had a specific question. I think I just wanted to hear more about and like hear like an overview of the research that you had done. And there's definitely so much we can break down um, from your own work and from the things that you've looked into and um, sort of like had insight on. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. I yeah, so I mean, ask, I actually, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think that like this also connects to the idea of better representation in research as well. Mm -hmm. I did want to make that point because the, you know, a lot of the research in this music and language stuff has been, you know, like we have Mandarin speakers and we have English speakers and then we have musicians. And one of the things that really inspired me in my PhD was that I was thinking, why are we comparing Mandarin speakers to musicians? 
to English speaking musicians as if those are like, you know, dichotomously opposed groups. What we should really be looking at is Mandarin speakers who have a wide range of musical experience and English speakers who have a wide range of musical experience. And that's an accurate comparison, but you can't say that Mandarin speakers and musicians, you know, both have enhanced sound processing. What happens within within the group? And so that was like one of the, the things that I was interested in for my last study where I found that actually Mandarin speakers um, who are musicians don't have enhanced sound processing compared to Mandarin speakers who are musicians or who are not musicians. Um, so, and, and in a couple of my colleagues who have done um, additional research in other language groups, uh, we think that it, it depends on the sound features. So it could be that music and language interact together to, to kind of um, adapt the brain. So for example, for the Mandarin speakers, if you you already speak Mandarin, so you already have this high level of processing pitch, but you might not have as high level of processing duration. So for example, if a Mandarin speaker then learned Finnish, that could be a way to increase their you know, duration processing, but they're not doing it directly through music. They're not increasing their pitch processing through music. But a Finnish speaker who is a musician actually does enhance their pitch processing um, compared to a Finnish speaker who's not a musician because they don't have that training from their original language, which of course suggests that, you know, like English speakers might benefit the most from, uh, from musical training because we don't have either pitch or duration in English um, in the same lexical coding in the way that Mandarin and Finnish do. But it's, yeah, and it depends a lot on the, the kind of uh, type of training as well. Like I was saying, if you train like one specific skill, it may not train the entire range and um, yeah, that's that's about it. It's really complicated. Um, and you know, of course, it relates to what we think of as musical training. Like, what is musical training? Kind of like what is learning? What is musical training? Um, one of the the things that some of my colleagues in London have developed, like somewhat recently, in 2012, 2014, they were working on it. Um, is an index of musical sophistication. So this is an idea that um, includes things like, you know, innate predispositions toward music, how you emotionally connect with music, how good you are at following a beat or following a pitch. Do you remember melodies? Um, these kinds of things. And so they think that all of this stuff is related to someone's musical sophistication which is kind of a different concept than just um, how long have you been taking classical music lessons, which is the traditional way of, of um, you know, measuring how much of a musician someone is, which obviously is not at all, uh, you know, the, the be all and end all of what it means to be a musician, classical music training in a conservatory. So that's another area where we really need to get better representation um, in, in thinking about all sorts of different kinds of musical genres, musical styles, musical traditions, and the ways that people engage with music are different as well. That was so, so interesting. There's like 10 things I want to break down from that. I'm really excited about this because um, I've been like immersed in music my whole life. So I have a lot of probably like more rudimentary questions, but like the whole idea of just like even what you were talking about with um, representation and this idea of like what really is music is super interesting to me and like was not even related to my first question so like I'll, I'll ask about this and then I'll ask what I was thinking about pitch earlier but 
I thought it was really interesting, like first your point on musical sophistication, because I think the status quo is to kind of measure, measure musicianship. So how much maybe you know about music, um, if you can read music well, like the complexity of music you can read, but um, things like the emotional connection you might have to music, um, how you play the music, how you perform. I feel like those are things that are so understated in the musical world until you're at that conservatory level and you've learned all of these musicianship, musicianship skills. And like now you're at this point where maybe you don't have an emotional connection to it, but it's like, well, how do you develop that now once you've learned everything else? And it's like, it feels like that emotional connection and like that sophistication should be more developed earlier on I feel like that's not emphasized as much in like sort of the classical musical training right like the classical idea of like what does it mean to you know make a musician um and I also like the idea of just like um maybe innate musical ability or like what that is if that even is a thing um I think it's really interesting my brother is in elementary school he's 10 years old and he has like like played piano for maybe a few years now but he has perfect pitch and he's had it since he was like five like when he first started playing piano and I don't have any of that so I would think like you know I think he's a better you know musician and like in terms of pitch he has a lot more of that talent than I do but maybe in terms of raw musicianship I might be better so I think even thinking about it in terms of like innate musical ability I think that's you know something that I've experienced just like with my brother um and I have siblings like who have shared like similar stories but I think like that's also interesting when we think about um how do people like interact with pitch or how do they kind of develop that ability and it's you know that idea is also really interesting to me because um there's also like that idea of once you play an instrument long enough or if you're around music enough you develop this idea of like relative pitch and you can kind of like um identify um sort of like the general area pitches or like the general pattern patterns of pitches and chords and all of those things and um I honestly think like that there is definitely a connection to language in that sense like you were talking about I feel like I've experienced that personally speaking another language and then also like growing up around music and singing and all of that um, and it's also really interesting thinking about you know if you play cello maybe you're you know more attuned to certain aspects of music versus let's say you're singing in all of these different languages like obviously you're going to have a very different relationship or experience with music doing that because that's a totally different type of music right um, and even thinking about it that way I think is super fascinating but I think overall, like, again, my experience comes from classical music and what you were saying about representation in the music world, right? It's not just about, you know, Western classical music, but it's about all of these different types of music that um, we're not interacting with. And um, I think that we were, you know, I think you wrote, wrote about this earlier and we were talking about this a little bit earlier as well, but um, like our preferences towards music and like what we're attuned to hearing and like the way that we feel about other types of music I think is super fascinating and I think there is definitely like a cultural lens to that because um, you know obviously people from different cultures like prefer music from their culture people you know prefer the music that they're listening to around them um, and I think you were saying like we prefer music that hits kind of like that sweet spot right like it's um, new but it's not too new and it's like even how our music preferences shift with this kind of whole idea of cultural attitudes and like maybe even has a relationship with like the pitches and the language that we speak I think is super fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. The yeah, the sweet spot is is really interesting, and the cultural aspect of it is really interesting. Um, so we think that the way that we learn our first language is through a process called statistical learning. So basically, we're just exposed to patterns, and that means um, you know both both the sounds themselves, the phonemes, and also the the order of the phonemes and 
they're, you know, the phonemes, the sounds appear in certain patterns over and over again, according to the rules of the language. Um, so the, the example that's usually used in English is that, you know, the phrase pretty baby um, is, you hear pretty and baby, you don't hear tiba, that's not a word in English. And so the likelihood when you hear the, the sound tr is, it's likely that it's gonna be followed by t, pretty. And when you hear t, it's not likely at all that it's gonna be followed by the sound ba, but ba b, baby, is very likely. So our brains actually pick up on those patterns. Our brains are really, really good at picking up and storing that pattern. So we develop an expectation for what comes next in a pattern and we can fill in that pattern. Um, and that's how we think we learn language. And we actually think that we learn music the same way. Um, and the rules of music are the, the cultural, um, you know, the, the, these, these rules of our music culture, of our music tradition. So Western classical music has, you know, major and minor chords. We have different modes that we can play in. Um, you know, we have this 12 tone scale that we, we use and we learn the patterns that come from those and we learn them really early. So some of my colleagues, um, I have a colleague who showed that uh, newborn babies actually have already picked up on the patterns of Western music and they can differentiate between major and minor scales, for example. And I, I have another colleague who um, showed that, that newborns actually have, like our auditory skills um, develop really, really early, even before we're born, we start developing these skills to notice patterns and we develop this memory for, for musical patterns. Um, so he did an experiment where they they played um, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star uh, to like pregnant women, be, like before the, the babies were born, these pregnant people were playing the, the, the music through I think, headphones. Um, and then after the babies were born, they put these little electrodes on their heads. It's very cute when they do it to the, the babies. And they played Twinkle Twinkle Little Star again and the babies could tell the version that they had heard before, before they were born. So our, our auditory system is incredibly sensitive and it's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly attuned to these patterns. And we actually think that this is, this is what drives our preferences and our enjoyment of a lot of music is that we know the rules of the genre. We know the rules of our, our home musical culture. And when we hear music that follows the rules, but maybe breaks the rules just a little bit, um, like jazz is a really good example of this, is why we think so many people love jazz, is that, um, you know, it's, it's groovy. This is the explanation behind groove as well. The idea of kind of like, you know, like funk music or like a really good beat, like music that really like sinks into us. Um, we think it's because we have this set of predictions about how it's going to go because we know the rules and then they break the rules just a little bit. And it's so satisfying when those rules are broken just a little bit, which kind of says a lot about our brains. We, we are constantly seeking novelty. We're seeking safety, but we're also seeking novelty. And this is sort of something that's just really interesting about humans in general. Everything you said so interesting, oh my gosh, especially about like the like um, ability for like um, fetuses to be able to um, pick up on like those auditory patterns even after they're born. I find that really interesting. I haven't looked into like human development um, from a biological standpoint too deeply, but I just think that's a really interesting like case scenario. Um, and something else I found interesting was you touching on like pattern recognition and how that speaks to like that larger theme of like 
the human's brain ability to like carry out that type of task um but also like how that sort of contracts like our deep need to like seek novelty like we like things that are new things that are different it, like again it's like about that release of like dopamine um so it's very much like so like an emotional like neurochemical thing as well um but something else i was thinking about too like now that you mentioned like how we seek novelty like um i was wondering like why does why do we have earworms in that case because like earworms wouldn't that seem like very redundant like wouldn't we get tired of like certain tunes tunes if we're like sort of hardwired to seek out novelty yeah this is a great question and and i think it's so interesting i have colleagues that are working in this as well so yeah an earworm is a song that gets stuck in your head right um, it's also it's also called involuntary musical imagery, which is a little bit more of a dry, dry term for it. Um, we don't actually know why it happens. What's really interesting is that it's it's almost entirely viewed as a negative thing, which is interesting when you think about it in terms of music. So everybody always says, oh, I've got a song stuck in my head or how do I get this song out of my head? It's so annoying. Nobody ever says, yeah, I've got that song stuck in my head. <laughs> it's almost never a positive thing, even if you like the song. Um, so we think that it's related to a couple of different things. Um, people who are musically trained or, you know, are amateur musicians or whatever, musicians of, of whatever kind or people who really enjoy music tend to get them more, um, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. if you're exposed to something more often, it might kind of, uh, your brain traces those patterns more often. It's kind of an exposure effect. Um, and it might also be related to creativity. So people who are kind of more creative and more divergent thinkers, um, their brains tend to switch into this kind of daydreaming default mode more often. And that's the, the mode where you're not really focused on anything. Um, and that's the mode when we get like aha moments. So the brain is sort of processing stuff in the background and then it will bring up um, spontaneous thought. And so an earworm is sort of a, a type of spontaneous thought having, happening in the, the musical parts of your brain. Um, and it might also be linked to movement. So people will often, and I've experienced this a lot, um, people will often say like, yeah, when I think about it, the, the song that popped into my head, it's at the same tempo that I was walking when it came into my head. So it may be related to some kind of, um, you know, a link with, with memory of, of movement, of motor skills, um, but yeah, we don't know why it happens. There's some sound features that are common to common earworms. So like more simple melodies, um, catchy tunes tend to have similar like intervals. Um, they're very singable. So usually something that is, has a very kind of singable melody or is a, you know, a vocal tune will get stuck in your head more often than something that is an instrumental piece, for example, or that like isn't really singable by a human. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. And my colleague, um, Kelly Jakubowski and Vanessa Williams and Lassa Leekinen have all worked on this and they have some publications, including a, a, a book chapter that is really interesting talking about kind of the history of um, what we know about earworms and musical imagery. I will also say they, they suggest, the researchers working on this suggest two methods of getting rid of earworms. So there's the saturation method, which is you listen to the song over and over and over and over again until it's not an earworm anymore. And then the other method is a distraction method. So this is get a different earworm stuck in your head, <laughs> listen to something else. And it tends to vary between people as to what method works best and how disturbing it is. Oh, and then I will also say, I just recently read that it might be related to um, other types of involuntary imagery and involuntary thought. 
So there was a really interesting paper that I've bookmarked, but I haven't read yet that suggests that it might be um, a window into understanding intrusive thoughts, for example, which is really interesting. Um, it just, you know, all of these things relate to our brains doing stuff without our, you know, our explicit control, which is also very interesting. That's definitely interesting. It kind of reminds me of, um, I was listening to like a David Eagleman podcast and something that he kind of says is like, we um, often have like these super spontaneous and like amazing insights and realizations and we like kind of commend ourselves for it because we're like, oh my gosh, like we're so crazy and intelligent for coming up with that on the spot. But um, in reality, our brains are kind of like subconsciously processing that for like, you know, several days or even weeks on end before like that thought emerges into our conscious mind so it's super interesting to think about like um the way that we see our intrusive thoughts and sometimes they're not really intrusive or you know spontaneous they're things that we've been mentally working on for a long time that we aren't even aware of um so I just wanted to like make that connection because it seemed relevant but one of my last questions I think um is kind of going back to the whole idea of like advantages that you have you know as a certain language speaker or like um potentially as a musician and I think like in one of your research papers you kind of talked about like cognitive versus um, subcortical advantages. Um, but can you still hear me? Okay, great. Um, but you talked about like, um, but you talked about like expertise could be potentially a cognitive, but not a subcortical advantage with, you know, Mandarin speakers. And I'm just curious if you can sort of break down this whole idea of like what, you know, cognitive versus subcortical advantages are, um, you know, advantages at different levels of processing that you might have as, you know, a language speaker of a certain you know, language or dialect or whatever. Um, and just like break that down a little bit more. <laughs> and it's something that they, we are asking bit. ourselves all the time. Um, yeah, so when we talk about subcortical, what is subcortical? Um, that is the, the deep structures of the brain. And when we're talking about what those structures do, they, they take in sensory input and they, they process it first. So in the auditory system, the, the subcortical parts of the auditory pathway um, take in sound and it it, you know, it comes in through the ear, this really simplified version, um, you're vibrating the basilar membrane and the basilar membrane is the structure that's inside the cochlea of your ear. And it's really like a membrane, right? And as it vibrates, it vibrates at the frequency of the sound that's coming in. And there's a structure that's attached to it that contains nerve cells or that's connected to nerve cells. And those nerve cells get activated. So it becomes this mechanical to a chemical um, to an electrical impulse. And those nerve cells take that information, um, they're firing at a certain rate, they take that information to the subcortical structures of the brain. Um, so that's the, the, we call the outside parts, the peripheral parts, the peripheral structures, and then the subcortical structures are these parts that process it next. And all of the information about the sound is preserved as it comes in. So we know, you know, what is the, the pitch? What is the duration? What is the, the timbre of the sound? What kind of sound is it? Um, and they do some really basic processing. We don't actually know exactly how all of it works. There's a lot of theories, there's a lot of different types of cells. So some populations of cells encode um, the, the, like the, the phase of the sound, some encode the timing of the sound. So there's different ways that cells kind of turn on and off, start firing and stop firing. And there's different thresholds for these different populations of cells. And then some fire at certain frequencies, but not others. And so with this bundle of cells, this is how we encode all of the information about that sound. Um, 
And then it goes up to the cortical structures and the cortical structures are like auditory cortex. When you see a, a picture of a brain, all of the wrinkly stuff on the outside, that's the cortex. Um, and the auditory cortex um, is located kind of, you know, above and behind your ear. Um, this we call the temporal area. Um, and the structures in there do some more, uh, more complex processing. So they're going to link the sound to other areas, for example, we call association areas. Um, they link the sound to memory areas, to sensory areas. Um, so that's how we can get the, the kind of feeling of a sound the timbre, you know, there's the texture, there's motor areas. So if you, what something is really cool is for example, if you hear a sound um, from the instrument that you play, your motor areas are gonna get activated because they know what it's like to play an instrument that makes that sound. It's a kind of associative process. Um, and maybe, maybe to other areas, for example, if you have synesthesia, there's going to be other areas that are connected. If you hear a sound and you associate a color with the sound, you're going to have the visual areas activated. Um, yeah, and again with the memory. So this cortical processes have this really complex relationship with all of the other stuff that goes on um, in the brain that's associated with that cultural memory and all of these things. Um, and the cortical processor processes are also where we get behavior, this high level stuff, memory, behavior, um, you know, even explicit thought, how we think about things, how we feel about things, the emotional connection to music. Um, and it's really difficult as a brain scientist um, to sometimes separate the, the different functions of those areas because the pathway includes all of those levels, the subcortical level and the cortical level. And we often try to separate them out to figure out where exactly a certain thing is happening. Sometimes we, we think that we can. So for example, in auditory processing, in my research, I was looking at subcortical areas, what's called the auditory brainstem, auditory brainstem response. And I separated that out by saying, okay, if we know that the, the processing path goes first here to these structures and then here to these structures, we can actually map out the timing of all of those effects. And we know that um, the neural impulses only reach the brain, the cortex of the brain by 150 milliseconds or so. And that's that's the, the kind of responses that we, we know that we can get from certain types of stimuli. So we have all of these different methods that we use if we play um, you know, a certain kind of melody and there's a, a note that's wrong, for example, we know that we're going to see a certain effect in the, the EEG. It's a, an um, event-related potential is what we call it, um, to a deviant sound. So we know what that looks like and we know how long it takes. But if you take the first 10 milliseconds of sound processing, that's definitely happening in the brainstem. I mean, there's, there's nothing in the cortex that can possibly process anything that fast. So we're saying that everything that we're seeing in this, um, this EEG printout, we can see the waves uh, of the, the impulses in the brain. If it's happening that fast, then we know it's happening in the brainstem. Um, and that's where we see a lot of this kind of like plasticity. So when we're talking about enhanced effects like processing um, pitch better, 
we we have a certain mapping of the the way that the waves look. So the more we call it the morphology of the waves. So we can see um, effects that are like higher, and that means there's more uh, brain impulses responding. So the population of neurons is is larger. There's more cells responding, or they're responding um, better together. So more close together. If you think of about um, you know the neurons as all of these little I don't know, like sea creatures or something, right? And they're kind of like, uh, you know, sticking their little, you know, like anemones, they're sticking their little faces out. Um, if you record every time one of them sticks its face out and they're not responding together, it's kind of dispersed all over the place. But if they all respond together, you have this larger effect. So that's what we call synchrony of the neural population um, that's responding. So when you have more neurons responding and better synchrony, then we get a bigger response and the processing is faster, it's more efficient. Um, and that's how we get, you know, more effective processing of pitch, for example. But what does that mean in kind of like human sized terms, right? So we can see that on an EEG, but what does that look like in human terms? Well, a lot of the time it doesn't look like anything because if you think about it, what is it, going back to our original conversation at the very beginning, what is it that we're recording? So for example, in my study, we were recording people's um, ability to discriminate between two different sounds that were really close together in pitch or in time. So can you hear the difference between these two sounds that are closer together than the notes on a piano? Um, and that ability differs. So musicians are better at that than non-musicians. Does that have to do with what's going on in the subcortical areas? Probably, because we see a difference there and then we see a difference in behavior and we see a difference in some of the ways that we record cortical responses. So for example, if you play those two together, you might get a response when people know the difference versus when they don't. But the, the levels don't always match up. And if you think about the way that the, the information is conveyed from one level to another, that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of stuff that gets added in. So even between the cortical area, the cortical level and behavior, you not only have the ability to discriminate between the two pitches, but you have um, the, the kind of conscious uh, like ability to notice that you can discriminate between the two pitches, which is a different thing than you know, being able to discriminate but not being aware that you can discriminate. And then you have the, the kind of motor planning area. So your brain has to know that it can tell a difference. It has to tell you that it can tell a difference, the conscious mind. And then it, which is prefrontal areas, planning, decision-making, this kind of thing, um, introspection, reflection. And then it has to tell the motor areas that you are gonna answer A instead of B because A is higher than B. And then you have to do that. And then you have to do that over and over and over again because we're in a, in a research experiment where we're gonna ask you the same question a hundred times just to make sure it's reliable. So there's a lot going on between the different levels and sometimes we don't see results that match up between the different levels. That doesn't mean that something isn't happening, but we can't say for sure that something is happening or we might not be answering or asking the right question. Yeah, that was so thorough and so many like valid points that I think are applicable to other aspects of research or other domains that are related to music psychology and even like auditory neuroscience. 
I mean, I love how you connected it back to the, like, the beginning of our episode and beginning of our discussions of like, how do you even define like, what is recording? Like, what is learning? And I think that's been a really consistent theme throughout this episode. Yeah, I just agree with that. I love that answer. That was super thorough. It's interesting to think about um, and at different levels, like even thinking about just like the neuropopulation neurons and then thinking about you know, the relationship between different structures in the brain and how, you know, they depend on each other and derive different forms of information from each other. And then thinking about it again, like at a societal level, how does that impact us as humans and our interactions with other humans? And I think that's what I enjoyed most about this episode is because we touched on all of the different levels. It wasn't just um, biological or social or uh, psychological, but it was all of those different things. And I think that's like what made this episode so valuable to me. Mm-hmm. And I will leave you with actually a fun fact related to that. One of my favorite um, studies ever is this bouncing babies experiment by Laura Sorelli. <laughs> so have you heard of this? No, I have not. It sounds this is amazing. Yeah, and it really like, yeah, it really underlines the importance of asking the right questions, connecting the levels, and then thinking about what it means for us as humans and us as a society. So um this researcher, what she did was did an experiment where they took uh, babies, um, like kind of, I think they were maybe between something like 18 months, this kind of toddler, like young toddler um, age babies. And some of the babies, they so they had them um, held by the experimenter. And the experimenter was wearing headphones. And then the baby could hear also. So they were listening to different things. And in Part of the experiment, um, they were listening to a beat. So like, you know, tapping a beat, a repetitive beat. And then half of the experiment, the experimenter and the baby were listening to the same beat and they were bouncing, the experimenter bounced the baby and they were all, you know, together with the beat, blah, 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 whatever. In the other half, they, the what the baby was hearing and what the experimenter was bouncing to didn't match. So the experimenter, according to the baby's perspective, the experimenter was bouncing wrong, you know, and then the experimenter had the headphones on so it wasn't um, confounded between the two different beats. And then they had a second phase of the experiment and the experimenter, they were doing this um, game where they were hanging up laundry, you know, with clothespins. Uh, and the experimenter would do this kind of play thing where they drop the the um, clothespin and they couldn't reach it from where they were sitting. And they were kind of like grabbing and doing this like, oh, oh, I can't reach it. And the babies that were bounced together went and picked up the clothespin and gave it back to the experimenter. And the babies that were bounced with the wrong beat didn't. They didn't pay attention to the experimenter at all. So this is called pro-social behavior, that the babies that were bounced in synchrony with the experimenter together um, experienced this kind of attachment to the experimenter. They had experienced this synchrony together and that enhanced their pro-social behavior. And so Laura Sorelli has done like several experiments. This is actually true across the age span is that people who experience synchrony uh, exhibit more pro-social behaviors. Children will help each other. People in workplaces will help each other more and pay attention to each other more. And this is potentially one explanation for why music is so important to society is because it, for whatever reason, it gets our brains to be in literally in sync with each other. And this is actually something that happens when we listen to music together, our brainwaves synchronize with each other, not only with the music, but also with each other. 
And yeah, so that it might be a reason for why music is so important to humans. It, it helps us get in sync with each other. And that means that we can get in sync emotionally and, and socially and understand each other better. And that's so beautiful. Like that just makes me so happy. That's such a funny and interesting experiment for sure. But oh my gosh, I think that's like the best possible ending to this episode. Like I just love that takeaway. And yeah, that's like also a big takeaway I have had in life. So I, I appreciate that. But just thank you so much again for all of the insight throughout this episode. I learned so much. I was not expecting to learn so um, you know, broadly across such a wide span of things, but I really learned like so much about um like teaching, education, culture, language, music, so many different things. And um I just love the breadth of this episode. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so so much. Thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure to to talk talk to people about all of these things and, and thank you for the wonderful questions you really like yeah really have a, a, a bright future for everyone